Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, as always, Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Paul Lesner, the Senior Vice President, National Shopping Centers, Third Party Property Management. Thanks for coming, Paul. Thanks for having me. JLL. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I should mention the company. Yeah, yeah, of course, from JLL. Thanks for pointing that out. Recording here at 16 York in our offices at First National in the middle of November, just to date stamp it so people have context of kind of where we're going. Beautiful six inches of snow outside, too. Paul, you know, we always like to start this conversation with just backgrounds. So people have a sense of who we're talking to. So why don't you just kind of let us know how you got into retail, how you ended up at JLL? What's your background? Sure. It's been about 20 years that I've been in real estate. I didn't actually start out my working career in real estate. I started out actually in banking. Right around the time that I got engaged, I sort of had an epiphany, realized that what I was doing, I was not passionate about it. Wait, it's, what's wrong with banking? Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> this interview is over. <laughs> I was more on a different side. I wasn't directly in banking at this point. I had started off in the banking side, commercial banking side, and then worked over. But I realized that if I didn't make a move now, I'd probably be stuck in this career for the full go of it. So I'd always had an interest and a passion in real estate. I always looked around at real estate. Whenever I'd go to a mall, whenever I'd visit a new city, I'd always look at the real estate, commercial, residential, all of that. And I have a lot of family and friends from growing up. Their families are involved in real estate. So I started to network. I started to open up the Rolodex and started to have coffees meet with people. One thing led to another and I got my first job in real estate. And how old were you at this point? I was 30 years old. Okay. 30 years old. I got my first job at Centercorp Management Services. So third party, property management and leasing as well, similar to JLL, but on a much smaller scale. And we were involved in strip plazas and open air centers. And I was basically the schlepper and just learning. And I worked with a bunch of different people within that group and got to learn a little bit about the business. At that point in time, they had the third-party leasing for First Capital Realty. But about a year into that, they had lost that contract. So it was time for me to find another job in real estate. So I went to knocking and again, opened my Rolodex and started making phone calls. Ended up at Smart Centers, formerly First Pro. And now I think it's Callaway. They've changed their names a few times. It's hard to keep up with it. But founded by Mitch Goldhar, brought Walmart to Canada, worked there for about six years, got to learn the super regional outdoor power center, Walmart anchored, Home Depot anchored real estate. We built out all the strip plazas there. Then from there, I got hired away to First Capital Realty to head up leasing for their Ontario portfolio. So I oversaw a team there. And we looked after a mixture of open-air centers, like grocery neighborhood-anchored shopping centers, a lot of mixed-use retail. So I got involved in development leasing and also an office portfolio of about three or four million square feet. Was there for about six years and then ended up getting hired away to go work at Oxford Properties, which is... You know everybody in the industry now, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. If anybody doesn't know these names, these are... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So got to Oxford Properties and... uh, gentleman by the name of Brad Jones hired me over there, was working there for about six years and was an amazing opportunity getting to look after their 
commercial real estate, their shopping center portfolio in Quebec and Alberta, helping look after Yorkdale, Square One, and Scarborough Town Center. Not all at once, but yeah. varying. Is it six experience. years there and then now at JLL? And now about two months at JLL. <laughs> Five years and 10 months to go. It seems like every six years there's the move. Right? <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny how that's happened. So you clearly have a passion for retail. Where does office rank in your hierarchy of favorite asset classes? Because it sounds like you had a stint there where you've been involved with a sizable portfolio. Yeah, it was more B and C class, which is a lot tougher office leasing. Not sure I'd want to be in office leasing right now. I think that retail's had their go of it. I'm thinking wearing a COVID hat right now. I think that the A-class office buildings are going to continue as I believe that the A-class shopping centers, whether that's open air or enclosed, are going to continue to thrive. And I think certain things, I always think back to the business card I had when I started a first capital realty. I think this was a Dory Siegel thing. And he had it on the back of his business card. And it said, location location, location. (laughs) And to me, that says it all when it comes to real estate, whether you're talking office, industrial, or commercial. Well, very true for all asset classes, but retail, it's very pronounced. And then like a two block difference in retail can be night or day. A two block difference in industrial, probably not a game changer. It's pronounced in your asset class in in a big way. And when I talk about AAA, it's not just the tenant mix. It's proximity to public transit. It's proximity to highways, adequate parking, and then the tenant mix starts to come into play, but it's also driven by that, and it's driven by that location. We should mention this is sort of part two of a series with JLL on retail, with our first part being Tim Sanderson. Episodes have been released in tandem, so if you're listening to this live, of course, you just go back and listen to Both are available right now. Both are available right now. With Tim, we really kind of talked about just the impacts of COVID and kind of retail, different segments of retail and their impacts of COVID as of today. I think, you know, Paul, perhaps we're going to dive in a little bit more to the economics of what's transpiring today. We already kind of date stamped this middle of November. Inflation's up high all across North America. We're seeing signs of recession. In fact, I think we are in a recession, depending on who you ask. What is going on right now on the ground? Sticking to kind of the regional power centers, the enclosed malls. I mean, we're a month away. If you're in the US, you got your week into Black Friday is next Friday, right? So it's supposed to be the holy days of retail. And then, of course, leading into the Christmas time. Is it different from previous years right now? Like, what are you hearing from your retail clients? It's different, but it's the same. There's a lot of added layers of complexity slash stress that's going on with the retailer today, I would say. Right now, obviously, there's a big question about how Black Friday is going to be. How is holiday season going to be? Retailers right now are already starting to see a slowdown, certainly in the U.S. We're not seeing quite yet the same slowdown in Canada. We generally are a few months behind what goes on in the U.S. So we are watching that to see what's happening in terms of the sales. But the added layer of complexity today comes down to things like cost of labor, the ability to get labor, the cost of getting those goods, when you're going to receive those goods, and then are you able to operate at your regular business hours? And that's really, that's that added layer about how profitable or not you're going to be during the holiday season. And then the question is going to come now, Black Friday, and then the holiday season, Christmas, are we going to have shoppers out in the same numbers? So, so, so not only can you project what you think your sales should be, it's a hard enough time 
stocking your staff and stocking your goods to potentially meet that unknown or both supply and demand question marks <laughs> circulating around. And yeah. do you get it? Because there's also like supply is not showing up at the right time. The whole delivery. Now it's gotten a lot better than it was in the summertime. Things have definitely improved, but I had just visited a retailer in the U S last week. We were at their head office and they had a dozen tractor trailers filled with clothing that they had received at the wrong time of the year. Like summer clothes leading yeah. into November? That Trying kind of to thing? figure just out what to do with it. Straight yeah. to a discounter after that, you know, just keep going. Everybody's suffering right now from labor issues, but must be even more difficult in retail because they rely on hordes of people making pretty low wages. You know, like I'm sure Goldman Sachs isn't suffering to fill jobs that pay 500K a year. But if you're trying to do minimum wage or slightly above, you know, that's the category that's getting the least attention for well, potential certainly employees. in Canada, there was a lot of governmental assistance that was provided in various forms, whether it was to the employer or the employee that definitely helped throughout, you know, those closure months. And they carried through up until this past summer. They only just stopped. I think it was in July, the governmental assistant programs. This is where we're really going to start to see the rubber hit the road, so to speak. Would that mean then there's a sort of return to work? People that were receiving that assistance that now are looking for employment that would presumably, to Adam's point, help the retailers find labor? One would you, think, you think, but I guess would, not for sure. Not for sure. I mean, it's certainly, you know, labor has come up in conversations with retailers that are looking to expand. And labor, amongst a couple other things that we can touch on, has been a major deterrent or handicap in their expansion plans because they've been challenged to get people to work. So just reading between the lines or just kind of interpreting what you're saying, the margins are challenged and we're still kind of in the early innings of the next sort of whatever period we're entering in, right? This downturn we're entering. So how are the flavors? You said you're in the US talking to some retailers. What are their sentiments? The immediate six weeks ahead with the holiday seasons and Black Friday aside, what does 2023 and 2024 kind of feel like for them? Surprisingly, like it may sound somewhat negative, some of the things that I'm speaking about right now, but our pipeline and the level of interest, whether it be domestic or foreign from retailers is strong. People are looking to reset stores, renovate, expand and enter Canada. We're still a bit of a beacon as it relates to, you know, we've got great population growth. We're not over retailed like our brothers south of the border. (laughs) So we don't have some of those similar challenges that they do. The retailers are looking up, obviously, the dollars and helping the situation, Mm -hmm. though. But there is still strong interest from U.S. retailers to come up. There's been a bit of a shift where we had a lot of, with all the nesting that was going on during COVID, anything home improvement-wise was booming. The luster is off that a little bit. Fashion's come back a bit. But the mix, as it relates to enclosed malls, you know, we're really looking to, the way I explain it is that with a mall, we're trying to get it back to what it was originally built for and its original purpose, which was a community gathering center. And with that community gathering center, there are many things there more than just retail and the purchasing of jackets or shirts or shoes. You want to have grocery, you want to have food and beverage, you want to have entertainment, you want to have service. So that's doctors, that's pharmacies, movie theaters, restaurants, a variety of restaurants. That's a big focus. Those are the conversations that we as landlords or third-party property management groups, we're having conversations about when we're looking to help diversify the mix. 
Shout out to my wife. This is from her. And she always says this. She has for, I don't know, 10 years. I wish there was a fitness facility at the mall. That was where I would be a member because I don't mind driving that extra distance. I'd work out there. I could do my cool down walking around. She's like, it just makes no sense to me that there hasn't been a good life or whatever attached to the mall. And Europe, I still haven't yeah. seen it. Like we're next to Sherway. Of course, there is none at Sherway. And I don't know of one. In, there is at Square One. At, okay, there is at Square One. So there you go. So that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Yeah. I've set this question up because we're going to finish on just sort of the expenses and the inputs and outputs for the retailer. What percentage of their expenses is rent? on average, for the retailer? That's a tough one to answer because it depends on the category. They also don't always share Fair. what the breakout Notionally, is. Give us a ballpark. Because I think in industrial, we always kind of use like 5 That's 10%. what you're going with it, right? Right. Like, and in retail, what is it? 40%? 3%? Meaning like, rent I, goes up by 40% yeah, in a category like 5%. That, or is it coming down? Do the retailers start going, wait a minute, my margins are being squeezed because of all these other things. I can't pay 50 bucks. I'm only paying 40 bucks. That's where I'm leading. But retail isn't seeing the jump up that industrial is. Maybe it's Well, that's it. Relevant, but, right? So again, yeah. can you totally, frame the question? I, you know, yeah. 30 to 40% is kind of where it is. Okay. Okay. But it's creeping up. But again, this is not my area of expertise. And the retailers, you know, it's different from one retailer yeah. to the next. Peloton and dealing- Tesla would pay something totally different than American Eagle. Yes. You can't but, compare the but two. But that Ma and Pa, that one-off retailer, their gross occupancy costs versus a larger chain, very pick different. a name, it's very different. And then if it's regional or national or global, and then what are they actually trading in? Are they vertical? Are they manufacturing it themselves? So yeah. there's a lot to unwrap there. No, no, fair. And I get that it's very general, just again, high level notionally. In the face of some of the challenges we're seeing, it would not appear then that there's a downward pressure on rents. Again, at least at that sort of national, regional mall level. To your point, you said there's still demand, right? Whether it's in Canada or outside of Canada, there's still demand for space. There's still retailers interested in accessing our community. There is still a demand for space. There is a pressure, as there always is, between the landlord and the retailer on rates. That will never go away, regardless, even when things were booming. That was always a challenge. So if Adam's sitting there and he's got a mall in front of him and he's underwriting it, should he be underwriting rents decreasing in the next five years? what's the renewal risk? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or is it category-based or (laughs) location-based? You say it's nuanced to sidestep the conversation, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Look, anything service-related, neighborhood-related grocery anchored type thing, I think is in fantastic shape. No matter what goes on in the economy, there are certain things that are always going to be needed. So The pandemic-proof retail, yeah. It was a real selling feature. For sure. I guess on that note, when you're trying to fill your space and not just blindly plug in a tenant that shows up willing to sign a lease, experiential retail, you're probably sick of hearing this term at this point because it's been nothing but conversation for four or five years now about that. But if you have a use that is really unique, interesting, exciting, going to get people through the door, you know, will landlords take a 15% reduction in rents because you know that you're going to make it a destination and exciting and cool and hip? The short answer is no, but we're open to being creative. In our most recent episode, Tim did release or announce Italy joining Sherway. We're sticking to Sherway just because people know it. Aaron knows it. I know it. Yeah, (laughs) there you go. Yeah, because I know it. Would they be in a position to negotiate sort of a discount because it's, you know, ah, it's Italy, right? Like, sure, it's the power of the Italy brand and And, what is it going to do, right? So it's the indirect. So that's a big conversation that landlords will always have is the indirect benefits that can be derived from tenant X. 
those indirect benefits and the indirect benefits could be in the form of traffic, increased well time, things of that nature that we believe on the landlord side and on the retailer side that if we can get more people in the door and they spend more time, there's a better likelihood that they're going to spend money and or more money. Right. Let's go down that path a little bit. Tim also was saying that there's less meandering. I can't remember the exact terms, right? But visitors of the malls are there for a purpose. Their spend ratio, when they enter the mall, they're there and they're buying something. They're not just going to kind of meander, if I put it that way. Is that a problem? Is that a conversation you're having with your tenants? And how do you fix it if that is the problem? Sure. Those conversations were definitely happening a lot more as we were coming out of COVID. Traffic numbers were down. We were speaking to the fact that we were seeing people that were coming into the mall were coming with purpose to buy. They weren't coming to meander. But in years past, pre-COVID, there was a lot of, let's just meet at the mall. Let's go for a walk. We can kill a couple hours. And spend money? Is meandering a good thing or a bad thing? Meandering, I think, is a good thing. Okay. Because we are generally, I would say, creatures of habit. So as that mall becomes reinforced in your mind as a place to go meander, to walk, you know, the weather's bad, whatnot. And I'm speaking now in closed malls. There's people, there's things to see, there's things to do. So that's where the alternative use is. That's where the experiential comes into play. That's where the coffee shops, the restaurants, all of that starts to come into play. And that's, again, going back to the location Right. Location, and I guess location the longer in. you can keep them there, the more likely they are to pull out their wallet and spend a dollar. Correct. There still is a lot, I would say, the conversion rate is still very high in terms of people going to the mall with purpose. But I think as we're approaching the holiday seasons now, the numbers are back. Like we are back to the numbers that we saw pre-COVID. And in some cases, we're beating those numbers. And the sales numbers too are being beaten. It's just um, margins are not... It's a question. Again, it's different retailer to retailer. But yes, this is the conversation, you know, when we're talking with the retailers, it's about the challenges that they face with margins, whether it be with the delivery of goods or labor, for sure. I want to go in two different directions. You pick e-commerce or outdoor malls. We've talked about it offline before we hit record about just they're in closed malls and there are malls that are not, I guess you call them open air malls. Well, we'll both pick one. Sure, I'm fine with either. We can do e-com first. (laughs) Okay, let's do e-com first then. So that was always a thing. Obviously, COVID amplified it. We all know the story. And we've talked about just like these squeeze margins. What impact does e-commerce have on the shopping experience? We used to talk about don't buy a pair of pants online. Are people going into the mall, trying it on, saying, okay, like that, but then going back home and buying it online to get a better deal? Like, I don't know if I really buy that. But at first, e-com, I think it scared all the landlords. This was this big unknown. The reality is, though, I go back to a few things. One, we're social by nature. So we like to go out and people like to go out with their friends and go shopping and try on things. And what do you think? What do you think? Yes, this looks good. There's a little bit of that element. It's an outing to go and buy clothing. You go to buy furniture. You want to sit on that couch. You want to lie on that bed. You want to try on that jacket. So I don't believe that e-commerce is going to be the destruction. And I think we've all sort of come to that realization that e-commerce is not going to be the destruction of bricks and mortar. What it's going to do is it's going to accelerate. What it's done is it's accelerated and COVID has accelerated, I believe, what e-commerce is doing is it's sort of cleaning up 
the B and the C class mall where they start to struggle a little bit as to what their purpose is. And that's where you start to see landlords looking at other alternative uses for those B and C class. Yeah. Or seek a ton of residential development, which is not which a bad is, thing. It's highest and best use and it just changes the community. Are you seeing your retailer clients just changing their approach to bricks and mortar then to kind of combine the e-commerce and the bricks and mortar? Like, I think about footprint, a, footprint. I don't need 2,000 square feet. I'll take, I'll take 700 and put just high quality, high ratio items in the store to drive e-commerce right. use. I don't know. Like you tell me. Right now, I would say it's not really impacting the number of locations or even so much the footprint because retailers right now, from my experience and my conversations with them, they're all experimenting with different ways in which to get the goods to the consumer. Is it click and collect? Is it return in store? Where is that supply coming from? Is it coming from a warehouse? Is it coming from the store inventory? There's a lot of different ways in which to get those goods. Is it same day delivery? Is it overnight? I mean, the reality is right now that e-commerce is not a very profitable revenue stream for retailers. There's a lot of overhead involved. And there's the example that always gets thrown around when I'm in boardrooms with different retailers or just even with landlords. And it's like you go around the room and you ask someone, oh yeah, my wife ordered, you know, we ordered four of the same things in different colors and we'll send back the other three. Well, that's not profitable for a retailer. They're losing money when people are doing the that. The returns are a pain. They're very... They almost yeah. say just keep it. It's cheaper. It's easier for me to just keep it. Well, they love my wife. She doesn't bother returning it. So <laughs> yeah, <it's> exactly. <laughs> Remind double clicks. All of a sudden, we'll end up with two of something. Uh, I didn't mean to get two of these. Like, okay, well, <laughs> so, send it back. No, I'm not sending it back. So I think what's going to happen with bricks and mortar, I actually think in these A-class malls, their retail footprints are going to get bigger. Because it's going to be about telling the story and connecting with the consumer. It's about building brand loyalty. And building brand loyalty is through experiential, for sure. It'll be showrooming. And there will be the ability to pick up there, but it'll kind of all morph together. But I still strongly believe, whether it's in an enclosed or on the high street, or even in the grocery store where you can order your groceries online now, you still want to go in there and squeeze the fruit or the vegetables and make sure you're getting the freshest one and the one you like. People naturally are going to want to continue to do that. It's here to stay, e-com, but it's not taking over. Well, omni-channel, right? That's the concept is it's not an enemy. It's a supplementary vehicle for generating revenue. And that's the big differentiator. I can't it's, remember the number. I'll make it up. But it was a significant proportion of people that end up visiting the bricks and mortar searched online for something that they were looking for and then end up in the store to buy it anyway. Oh, impulse is tough to ignore. Impulse is huge, (laughs) for sure. And I also, I can't tell you how many different retailers I've spoken to that speak to the fact that when they open a store in any given market, their online sales go up. And if they close a store, their sales go down online. What's the connection? Brand sight out of mind, brand awareness. Interesting. Yeah. You must spend time structuring leases. Now compared to, we'll use pre-COVID because it's an easy kind of time metric or maybe even you'll go back a little further. Are you noticing a shift? Are people doing longer or shorter terms? Are you seeing more or less revenue participation? Like are people adapting the modern lease to reflect current conditions as compared to five years ago? Again, it will come down to certain asset classes. Certain real estate has done a better job of holding the line. 
there is certainly a lot more creativity that has come out of COVID in terms of how to get through the challenges of COVID. We really had to put our thinking caps on and we really had to get creative and collaborate, truly, truly collaborate with the retailers and come to that epiphany that their success is our success. We really are in this together. How many force majeure clauses now include in yeah. pandemic? That's got to be standard. <laughs> well, the retailers are definitely trying to put it in. I can't say that we've agreed all the time. Yeah, yeah the recency effect of that would be tough to ignore. 2019, you would agree to it all day long. It's like, oh, a pandemic, who cares? <laughs> okay, let's keep going. We're running out of time here. And so I do want to talk about just the outdoor open air malls. And just, I'm remembering, yeah, I guess it was like 10, 12 years ago. I can't remember. There's a mall up sort of North York here in the GTA shops at Don Mills. That was this big new thing. And it was very much like a high-end, high-quality, great experience, all outdoors, which is a very American style, right? Like you're in Arizona, that's all the malls, right? It's all outdoors. How successful has that been? What does that look like today? Has that survived as equally well as COVID? What do the retailers think about that sort of site versus an enclosed or regional power center? Well, I can only speak as a consumer to that one. I haven't been involved with the leasing of that particular mall. As a destination in terms of entertainment, food, and beverage, I think it's been a home run in a lot of ways. It provided that community with options that they just, frankly, they didn't have, or they'd have to get into their car to drive great distances. But what about open air versus enclosed? If you had the same selection enclosed, would be a different Look, there experience. Are, you know, our climate obviously plays a factor. Some of the most successful open air centers, you're going to find them in warmer climates. That's not to say that they're not open air centers that work in colder climates. It's all about how's the parking work? What's the distance to the retailer doorstep and how big it is? I think that making them vast that, you know, you're not going to walk outside for a couple hours or an hour and a half. So it's not as much meandering. There's not as much meandering. You're popping into, you know, in the winter months. But in the summer months or in the shoulder seasons, so spring and fall, you're still going to have a lot of that. And truth be told, even in the winter months, there's a lot of outdoor activities, skating, for example, that you can do and you're bringing families. So in some ways, they create a different kind of an outing for a family on a weekend where maybe you wouldn't go to the enclosed mall because that's just not your thing. You want to take your kids. You can go skating and you can... Get a hot chocolate or go have dinner or whatever it may be. Exactly. Yeah. And if there's a little shopping you need to do, if it's got the appropriate retail, you can pop in as well. I remember when that one was announced, it was a lot of skepticism. I know it's been successful. You haven't seen it replicated very much in other places that I'm aware of. Some landlords are spending money to demall. Like they clearly see there's an investment to be made in demalling, which is turning it into open air concepts. Right? Those are more like the B and the C's. I'm seeing a lot of like demalling their neighborhood. So they're keeping those like grocery anchored, the amenities, the shoppers, the Rexalls and like that. And then there's certain types of... You know, You're probably unlocking some unused land. And, and then uh, exactly. Yeah. And then you get to add density there. Through COVID, there has been a lot of retailers that are traditionally in enclosed malls and want to stay in the enclosed malls. They've been asking for exterior, interior, and exterior doors. So that's the one thing that's been, and we've been now more open to it. Whereas in the past, you wanted to funnel everyone through four entrances. So Um, that nobody could just drive up, go to one store and leave. You had to go walk by other stores. We're finding now that we need to be more receptive and open 
to looking at the retailer's asks as it relates to exterior, more for the bigger boxes. Sure. So then related question to that, if you do a funnel system, how much of a premium do you charge for those first exposure retail leasing opportunities when you're coming right into the mall and you're forced to walk by it? A lot. A lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's finish there. Let's talk about just foot traffic in general and what the malls are seeing, what you're anticipating in the future. Post-COVID, obviously there's none. Post-COVID, I think there was a huge amount. Now we're in this sort of curious hybrid working from home, working in the office environment. How has that changed foot traffic and just the way that we as a community are just engaging with sort of the power centers? Well, the challenge has been, let me put it this way, that suburban seems to be, because so many people are working at home, suburban's been benefiting from that, whether it's the neighborhood grocery or anchored shopping center or strip center or the malls. Those suburban centers got back to pre-pandemic levels, traffic numbers, well in advance of our more urban centers. And our urban centers are seeing this work phenom of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Monday and Friday is quiet. That's sort of what we're seeing. So it's definitely picked up. The suburban markets have benefited from so many people working at home and popping out. Well, I don't know whether it's during the day or what's happening. They're working. You know I'm not going to go yeah, there. You know but it is. <laughs> we're seeing that in we're seeing that in malls in the suburban settings and these urban settings downtown in the cores and the business cores in particular, it's a challenge. It comes in waves. And that becomes, you know, especially if you're in the food business, how much food do you order in? If you're only serving for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Right. And staffing too, because you don't have that traditional five-day employment. Yeah. We are out of time, Paul. And I appreciate. Quick question before we go. Black Friday's upon us. What are you buying? Where are you buying it? I like that. That's <laughs> yeah. a good question. This is a Black Friday episode, so it's relevant. <laughs> well, because of the warm weather, I have not bought a winter jacket. So I will definitely be purchasing a winter jacket. I think I'll be going to Yorkdale because it's close to my house. And I'll be going to Vaughn Mills as well. Another great shopping center. Winter jacket's a big ticket item these days. So you probably want to try and scoop a deal if you can. So or find that. one because you get there a week too late and they're all gone. That's I know. I think I might be in trouble. <laughs> you might be late now after the, the snowstorm. Snow yeah. <laughs> Paul, thanks a lot for your time today. Thanks for sharing your experience, the JLL experience. Thanks, of course, to First National for powering the podcast. And we'll see you all in the next one. Oh, and stay tuned for the after show coming up next. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I talk about all the talking that we just did. Paul Lesner is interesting. This is our second episode, back-to-back episodes on retail. And... I will admit I had a little concern that we might be duplicating content with a back-to-back concept, but not at all. This was a totally different take on retail. Very interesting. I definitely enjoyed it. The notes I've got for takeaways for this. You mentioned over-retailed Florida. And I got to think that everybody who listens has been to Florida at some point. You know, if you're a Canadian, maybe West Coast, maybe obviously you're down California, but if you're in Ontario... Which is also over-retailed, so you kind of group them together. If you've been there while employed in real estate, you cannot help but notice that there's malls that here would need to be at a core of a major urban center to be viable. And they're just kind of drifting out in the middle of a bunch of low-rise density with no major centers around. And then you drive 10 minutes down the road and there's another one just sprawling all over the place. It's mind-boggling. Obviously, we touched upon that too, that there's less revenue per square foot generated in the States for that reason than there is here, but it's still viable. I mean, that's the unbelievable thing. They can be supported. 
I wish Paul were still here. We could ask him that question because I don't understand the logic either. Is it more disposable income? Perhaps they've got less taxes, so they got more money to spend. And so retail gets more of the individual's dollar. It's an interesting thought. Yeah, probably is a valid reason for it. Can't just be that Americans like shopping more, right? Like according to my wife, or apparently observing my own wife, she likes to shop quite a bit. And I assume everybody else does, right? Like I may not be one of those people, but a lot of people love to shop in Canada. It can't just be the demand is higher in the US than it is here. I'll second your thesis on that. Because <laughs> you're not a shopper. No, no. Well, we talked about the meander versus a mission in shopping centers. And I'm one of those people, I'm in the parking lot. I look at the map so I can go the shortest point from the door into the mall I need to go to. I'm getting in and out. If my kids are there, I've got like a cat of nine tails in front of me, driving them to keep them away from other retailers. And I pride myself on my in and out time. So I probably not what they want. You know, they want people just milling about, just aimlessly spewing money. Yeah. <laughs> you and I just come from the same cloth because I'm exactly the same. We both live near Sherway. We've made that very clear, obviously. Using Sherway as our example it's of our a only regional mall. Yeah. <laughs> if you know Sherway, it's a figure eight, basically. And I know exactly which door... I know Sherway well enough to know where every store is. So clearly I go there frequently enough. I know it fairly intimately. But I also know where to park, the fastest ways to get to those parking spots so that I can get in the door, get to the store I need to get to and get out as fast as possible. Yeah. I'm not going to the same spot and happily wandering through for an hour. Kids or no kids, doesn't matter. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> or going to the mall because you need to buy a stick of gum and you want to wander around for an oh, hour. Yeah. No, no, I'm going to the mall only because the store that I need to go to happens to be in yeah. that mall. And Amazon, for some reason, was going to be more than a day delivery or whatever, whatever it may be. Yeah. yeah. Well, the other question I wanted to ask that we didn't get to, and that maybe this is not great for an after show, questions we can't answer. We talked about inflation and we talked about store costs going up, one of which, of course, would be minimum wage going up. So does inflation offset the effects of minimum wage going up, at least here in Ontario anyway, that was about a year and a half ago, there was a huge jump up. And I know we've had a few smaller phased in jumps since then, and I wish I knew the actual dates, but does it become less meaningful? I know it becomes less meaningful to the people receiving those wages because inflation, of course, is now eroding the purchasing power of that. But then for the stores, if they are able to see inflation in their prices, does it offset some of the hindrance to the bottom line? I don't know the answer. And there's probably seven other variables to consider in that, but it did come to mind while we were discussing with him. The whole delivery chain and the impact on inflation, I mean, I'm not smart enough to wrap my head around it. How much are the prices going up to just maintain margins? How much of that are they decreasing margins because they can't, you know, there's a sticker shock if you increase the price of a certain good the level you need to to maintain your margins. Or grocery stores being accused of... Yeah, which apparently they're not. Or like it's gone up for other reasons than just inflation. Again, the whole thing is super complicated. But I love the idea of how much does minimum wage increases get eaten up by inflation? Does that have any impact? Or are they self-perpetuating, perhaps? I don't know. I don't even know if Paul could answer me. I don't think he did. Let's not give Paul that much credit. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get Benjamin Tull back on. Yeah, that's who you need to ask that question for. I will give Paul credit for something else. He showed up here at our offices. I went up, I shook my hand. He goes, hi. And I go, hi, I'm Aaron Cameron. He goes, hi, I'm Paul Lesnar. What am I here for? <laughs> yeah. And I went, all right, well, come with me. I walked down the hall and I had to say, well, you're here for a podcast and this is the offices of First National. And Adam and I actually have nothing to do with podcasts other than the fact that we ask the questions. I've had a couple of people think that we're professional podcasters and I had to quickly dispel be like, no, 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 no. This is a side gig. But it was very, very good. After behind the scenes look, he took off his headset when we finished the episode and he kind of said, wow, that was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be, yeah. which was a good credit to him because it was a very smooth conversation. Well, he started in banking, so he must be smooth. Yeah, right? exactly. Not- this is a precursor, a plug for the soon episode to come out. If you're listening to this, 
next couple of weeks, Salima Raji is coming out and she's one of the decision makers at CreateTO and a very, very interesting episode just to hear what she's doing at CreateTO to try to drive profitability and help with the city of Toronto achieve their goals. I didn't ask Paul this, but Selena and Paul worked together at Smart Centers and we're both under Mitch Goldhard's mentorship at the same time. My point is they're spinning out a lot of really smart people out of Smart Centers. I like that compliment. Maybe we'll go in a high note. We'll go right, right Leave it there yeah, then. No, okay. Yeah, definitely smart people. I think that's everything from Aaron and I today. Thanks everybody, of course, for listening. First National for powering the podcast and the Canadian Real Estate Forums for putting this all together. And JLL, of course, for coming on. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.